Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. But uh, with that, if you have a Bible with you, be it one of those uh, low-tech versions on paper or uh, one of them high-tech ones on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter number one. And uh, and I just want to welcome you back. We're going to be in this series, um, uh, Christianity 101, uh, that we've subtitled um, What We Believe and Why. And today we're going to be in part three of this series. And if you have missed the first two parts, then you really, really need to get caught up because, um, because there's just a lot that we've talked about the last two weeks, and so you can either go to our SoundCloud page or our church website, and you can listen to either place there, and you can listen to either or both of those messages of the first two parts and get all caught up, and the addresses for your convenience have already been put in, in your bulletin, and uh, and as I've said, we're in part three of this series, and as I mentioned before, uh, from the very beginning of this series, Christianity 101, it's not it's it, it's not exactly like the series we normally do here at First Baptist Church, okay, because most of the series we do tend to be very practical and about application. In fact, last year we we started um, the year off with a series titled Resolve, where we can, you know, it was about how we can actively grow in our abiding relationship with Christ. And what we did in that series is we identified seven daily disciplines that you can practice in order to grow in, in your walk with Christ. And it was a very, very practical series. And most of the series we do here are that way. But this series that we're in right now isn't quite so practical. It's actually very theological, which means I'm not going to be asking you to do very much much, but instead I'm going to ask you to think, okay? The series isn't so much about what you do per se, but instead about what you know about your faith and, and what you believe and why you believe it. And so because this is a theological topic, I issued um, a warning last week, and I will renew this warning today, and the warning is this, okay? Because this is a theological topic, um, uh, there is a chance you'll probably be exposed to some very geeky theological ideas, and you will probably hear some strange theological terms, uh, things like the divine nature and essence, and and maybe even things like anthropomorphisms. And I know that you're dying to know more about that word, okay? But uh, and I know theology can be a little bit dry. I get it, all right? I know it can be a little bit boring at times, and I totally understand, you know, uh, that. I mean, I've read more than my share of theology books as the one I shared with you, a thousand pages long. Uh, I got several more. In fact, uh, the titles like uh, the Moody Handbook of Theology, which is just as thick, or the or, or Ryrie's Basic Theology, where there's nothing basic about it. Um, or how about the Modern Theologian? And if that's not enough for you, how about the, um, the, the one titled Toward an Exegetical Theology? Because if theology is not enough, you have to have a, an exegetical theology, whatever the heck that means, right? So I, I'm telling you, I understand that. In fact, you know, these books for me have not really been been page turners. In fact, if you have a problem with going to sleep at night, come see me. I'll let you read one of those books. It'll, it'll take care of your problem. Okay, so I understand that theology can be a bit dry, uh, but it is important. It's actually extremely important. And as I said, in, in the first two weeks, I'll do everything in my power to, to make this subject interesting and, and, uh, and, and exciting, engaging, but despite my best efforts, I'm not going to blame you if you fall asleep during this discussion. Okay, it's warm in here. The chairs are very comfortable. 
uncomfortable, so I'm not going to blame you uh, if you fall asleep, but I will post your picture on Facebook if you do, okay? And uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'll just post on Instagram instead. So, uh, but, but with that, the truth is, is that, that you know, we're in a series uh, that's actually really important. We're, we're doing a theological series because it's an important subject, and, and uh, you know, we opened this discussion up in week one. What we discovered is that for, for all that we do as Christians, for all of our religious activity and for our service and our spiritual disciplines and, you know, church attendance and Bible reading, okay, the important truth that we, there's an important truth that we must keep in the forefront of our minds. There's an important truth that we must hold on to as followers. It's a truth that we must keep our eyes fixed on. And it's a truth that our culture is trying to get us to, to forget and, dis, and to distract us from. The truth is simply this. It's not what you do that saves you, Okay. It's not what we do that saves us. It's what we believe. It's not what we do that saves us. It's what we believe. And this is an important distinction because the world is trying, you know, in the name of tolerance to get Christians to stop thinking and focusing on what we believe and shift our focus onto how we behave. In fact, as we talked about, the mantra of the world is this. It's not what you believe. It's how you behave. And for many, that sounds good, all right? It's not what you believe, it's how you behave. And that's a popular mantra of our culture and the world around us. But let me be the first to tell you, okay, as Christians, how we behave and how we treat other people is absolutely important, okay? It is Jesus who said to love your neighbor and to love each other and to love our enemies, okay? And, and Christians, Christ is the one who encourages us to do all those things. And so as Christians, we haven't historically always done a good job with that. So how we behave is important, but let's be really clear. The Bible is very clear and teaches us that it's not what we do that saves us. It's what we believe. You're not saved by your efforts and what you do. You're saved by what you believe. In fact, when the jailer in Philippi asked uh, Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul did not say, go out and love everyone the way Jesus loved them. And go out and, and be nice to everyone and treat them well, you know, and you'll be saved. Because it's not about what you believe. It's about how you behave. It's not what he said. What he said was, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation comes from what we believe and not what we do. Salvation is about, about our beliefs and our behavior. So, so what we believe then, the things that we actually believe, the substance of what we believe is incredibly important. Our doctrines are important. And so that's what this series is about. It's about what we as Christians, what we must believe to be saved. It's about the essential things that of our faith, the essential doctrines of what we believe. And that is the focus of this series. And we're going to focus on things that are essential to our faith in God. What is it that we must be uh, believed to be saved is a question that we're asking. And the first thing that we talked about in week one was the fact that we're saved you know, by what we believe and not what we do. Or in other words, it's the doctrine of justification by faith in alone in Christ. Okay, We are justified or we are saved by our faith alone in Christ. And that is that became the foundation of what we're doing here in the rest of this series. What must we actually you know, believe to be saved. Last week we began talking about the object of our faith. Okay, What is it that we actually believe in? What is it we put our faith in? What are we trusting in? What is the actual object that our faith rests on? What saves us? And what we discussed is that the object of our faith is simply the person of Jesus Christ. 
Okay? He is the object of our faith. Jesus is the central point of what we believe. He's the beginning and the end of all of our doctrine. He is the central figure of the Bible. He, uh, he is called, we're called Christians because of Christ. And everything we believe and everything we teach is centered on him and his life and his work. And so because of that, okay, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus. And we're going to talk about what we believe about Jesus, the object of our faith, and what we need to, to, to be saved. And there, there, there's a lot to this. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to Jesus. And, be, and so last week, we began with the historical Jesus, the real historical Jesus Christ. And as we discussed, he was a real man in history. And he was not simply just a myth or a legend. He was someone who existed in time and in space. And the historical record, even beyond the Bible, validates that. And during our discussion, we, dis- we discovered there are four things that you must believe about the historical Jesus. Four essential things that you need to know and firmly believe about this historical Jesus. And they are these. Jesus was absolutely born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and he literally physically was raised back to life. These are the things that you must believe about Jesus. And as we talked about these things, they're not just validated by the Bible, but they're validated by the historical record as well. And if you missed this discussion last week, then you really need to get back to it and listen to it. Now, this week... What we're going to do is we're going to move on from the historical Jesus and begin to talk about who Jesus is. Now, you might be thinking, well, well, wait a minute. Isn't that the historical Jesus? I mean, isn't the Jesus of history who Jesus is? And, And you're right. The historical Jesus is Jesus. And we can certainly learn a lot about Jesus from history. But the thing is, what we know and learn about Jesus from history actually has its limits. For example... You know, we've all heard of Abraham Lincoln. I think we all know quite a bit about his history. We know that he was born in Illinois, that he was the president of the United States during the Civil War. Uh, He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. He's the one that gave the Gettysburg Address. And we know that he was shot in Ford's Theater, and we know that he died uh, sometime later from his wounds. And and many more people know more about Lincoln than, than some of us do. Okay, And they've read the books, and they know all about his history, and they believe firmly the things that he did in history. But, but here's the thing. For all that you can possibly learn and know about Lincoln, there's still limits to what you can know and learn. Okay? For all of that learning, you still cannot know Abraham Lincoln personally. Okay? You understand that? You can read the history books and you can study all the documents and you can work up your own uh, psychological profile and you can become the world's leading expert on Abraham Lincoln, but you can never move beyond a historical understanding of the man no matter how much you admire him and no matter how much you love him. You will never have a personal understanding or a relationship with Abraham Lincoln because you were separated by history. Okay? That is the nature of history. For all that history can teach us and prove to us, and, and history does teach us a lot and prove a lot, but for all of that, the best we can do is have a historical understanding of this historical figure. We don't get to personally know who they are. But with Jesus, it's different. Okay? Yes, 
We are absolutely, we have this historical Jesus that we can study and learn and, and, and about and follow the evidence to know more about him. And we can, through history, validate his existence and the things that he did here on the earth. But with Jesus, we have the ability to really know who he is. We have the ability to develop an up-close, personal understanding of who Jesus is. We have the ability to learn his very nature. And the reason why we can do that, and the reason why we can know these things about this Jesus, is because Jesus, because God has painstakingly made a point to reveal to us who Jesus is. God, in his word, has made, a, made it a point to define and spell out in very specific detail who Jesus is in his word. In fact, the entire Bible from front to back is about Jesus. The Bible is the unveiling narrative about Jesus. In fact, it's said that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. Uh, Jesus is the central theme in the figure from, um, from the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He's the central point of everything that's written. He is the foundation on which all scripture rests. And because of that, then, we can actually know more about Jesus than history simply tells us. We can know about Jesus because of what God himself tells us. Now think about this. If God were to take some time and tell you about Abraham Lincoln, don't you think that you would know him more deeply than we can know him right now? Of course. It's the same thing with Jesus. God spent thousands of years compiling his narrative uh, about Jesus, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we can know more about him. In fact, Paul tells us, he says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him, Jesus, better. You see, it's about knowing who Jesus really is. Not just simply you know, the, the historical Jesus, but the Jesus that God himself is revealing to us. And this is important because Jesus is the rock-solid object of our faith. Because, remember, it's what we believe that saves us. Jesus is the object of our faith, and so what we believe about him is critical and important. And so what we know about Jesus is important and essential to our faith. You see, some people will acknowledge that Jesus was a man in history and that he was a rabbi. And yes, he was a man in history and a rabbi. Okay, but that's not all because a dead rabbi cannot save you from your sins. And there are others that will say that he was simply the greatest man to ever live. And yes, he was the greatest man to ever live. But the truth is, a dead man, no matter how great cannot save you from your sins. And there are some who say that Jesus was an angel who became a man, but an angel or any other created being for that matter, no matter how noble, cannot save you from your sins. And there are some people who, who say that Jesus you know, is simply just the Spirit of God who inhabited a man. But the problem is the Spirit itself by itself cannot pay the price for your sin. The Spirit cannot save you. So if you believe that Jesus is only a man, or you believe that Jesus is God's spirit in a, in, in a man's body, then you don't know who Jesus is. And that Jesus that you believe in cannot save you, no matter how sincerely you believe it. And if you believe that he, Jesus was an angel, be it Michael or whatever, uh, you don't know who Jesus is. 
And the, the Jesus you believe in cannot save you. And if you believe that Jesus was literally the physical offspring of God the Father who himself was once a man who then became God through perfecting himself through his own actions in an endless line of other gods, no matter how sincerely you believe that, you don't know who Jesus is. And the Jesus that you believe in cannot save you even if you go to a church that's named after Jesus Christ. You see... If I tell you, you know, that, that you can trust, you know, my friend who's not here this morning, Keith Baird, with your wallet, all right, but you end up trusting some guy named Keith Baird who is six foot four, 270 pounds, with long flowing black hair, okay, all right, your trust has been misplaced because guess what? We're not trusting the same guy, all right? You see, we're not talking about the same person. It's not good enough to trust someone because they have the same name. And just because a religion says that they believe in, in Jesus doesn't mean that we're talking about the same Jesus. Okay? We might be using the same words, but it doesn't mean that we're talking about the same things or the same person. So let me again say what you know about Jesus and what you believe about Jesus is essential to your faith because he's the object of what your faith rests on. And because of that, today, we're going to move beyond the historical Jesus and what Jesus tells us. We're going to dive into the very nature of who Christ is really. And so we're going to talk about what we need to know to be saved. And so from that, from the very beginning of the church, even before Bibles were written, okay, even before the books of the Bible were written, there was a central uh, teaching about Jesus, and, and, and it was central to faith and central to what the church taught. And even though the Bible was written and compiled much later, these teachings about Jesus began to emerge very early on, and they were known as what's called creedal formulas or creedal statements. Okay, and uh, a creedal formula is a statement that is basically a very clearly expressed statement of belief. In fact, most people are familiar with what's called the Apostles' Creed. Okay, you've heard this where it says, "I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and." Jesus Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and, and so on. And, and there are other creeds like called the Nicene Creed, and, and there are others that are written throughout history like the Westminster Confessional. And all of these creeds, every one of them, the central subject is Jesus Christ and who he is. And the purpose of these creeds is to clarify exactly what we must believe about Jesus. And over the years, there were five essential facts about Jesus that have emerged that constitute the basis of our faith in him. They are the foundational truths about Jesus that we need to know and believe. And so today we're going to talk about some, we're going to take some time and talk about these five things that you need to know. Uh, and we're going to talk about why you need to know them and believe them. And the first one um, that we're going to talk about gets right at the heart of the matter who Jesus is. Okay. Is Jesus simply God in a man's body, or is Jesus a perfect man who became God, you know, or is Jesus something else than other than that? Uh, and we look for the answer in John 1, um, and, and John opens up his gospel with the greatest declaration about the truth of who Jesus is, and, um, and, and, and he wrote this. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know from the context of this, you know, over and over again, that John, what he's saying right here is that, that, that Jesus is the Word. Okay? And John declares right from the very beginning that Jesus is, in fact, God. Okay? This is the immutable, indisputable, undeniable element of faith. The historical Jesus we believe in is, in fact, God. But he was 
more than just that, okay? Because John also says the word became flesh, okay? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word Jesus became flesh or a man. He became a living, breathing human. He was not some spiritual manifestation of a human. He was a man. He was born into the world. He grew up as a human man. And, and so the two things, okay, these two things lead us to the first truth about Jesus that we absolutely must embrace. And that is, Jesus has two natures. He is both God and man. Jesus is God, the Son, and he is also a human man. And because of that, he has a divine nature and, because, and he has a human nature. And so if someone asks you whether Jesus is God or a man, the answer is simply both. Yeah, or yes, that's right. Okay? He is both God and man. He is the fusion of God and man together, and it's the greatest miracle of all time since the creation of, of all creation itself. Now, the fact that Jesus is both God and man naturally generates some really big questions. Like, how does that work? How is it that Jesus is both God and man? Is Jesus God, and then, then he becomes a man, and then becomes God again after the resurrection? Or is Jesus God who simply inhabits a human body while on earth? Or, or how is he both God and man? And, 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 in fact, the wife of a very famous pastor, okay, actually kind of gets this wrong. All right, she's very confused about this subject. During their communion service in this gigantic church here in America, okay, uh, she got up and spoke during communion and said, when, when Jesus was baptized, that's when God put his spirit into the man, Jesus. But is that how that is? No, actually, that's not how it is. It's not even close. Actually, when Jesus was born, the moment he was born, he was fully God and fully man. In fact, each of his natures that, that Jesus possesses, his divine nature and his human nature, are full and complete. Okay? He is fully God and fully man. So we have to understand this. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's not 80% God and 20% man. He is 100% God, 100% man. Okay? Jesus is 100% God, the Son incarnate, which means that everything that is essential to being God is true of Jesus. Jesus is not part of God okay, or just a third of God. Rather, he is fully God. Paul tells us that for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is 100% God. And it's also important to recognize that when we say that Jesus was a man, he's not simply mean that he was partially a man. We mean that he was fully, completely a man. Everything that belongs to the essence of being truly human was true of Jesus. He is, is truly as human as the rest of us. In fact, Jesus is as truly and fully human. It, 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 it's clear, actually, from the fact that he had a human body. It's clear that he had a human mind. And it is clear from Scripture that he had a human soul. Jesus does not look simply like a man. He doesn't just talk like a man. Rather, Jesus is, in fact, fully a man. Fully and complete human nature is what he possesses. Now, it's helpful to also be aware that there are false views uh, that people have about Christ. Uh, and because because as we've said before, it's not simply, you know, it, it's about what you believe that saves you. And so it's important to know what not to believe. And so one of the false views that is, was rejected a long time ago by the church taught that the person of Christ did have a human body, but he didn't have a human mind or a human spirit. 
Now, because those who held this view uh, did not believe that Jesus had a human mind or spirit, they in effect denied that Christ was fully and truly human or a man. Rather, they presented Christ as a sort of half-man kind of uh, who, who has a human body, but whose human mind and, and soul were replaced by his divine nature. But, but the truth actually is this. Jesus is just as fully human as the rest of us. For, for just as, as he um, has all the essential elements of being God, he also has all the essential elements of being a human. He has a human body, a human soul, a human mind, a human will, human emotions. His human mind was not replaced by a divine mind. Rather, he has both a human and a divine mind. Jesus is fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. He's the quintessential God-man, so to speak. And, and guess what? This isn't a temporary thing either. Okay, Jesus will be fully God and fully man forever. Jesus, from his birth into eternity forward, will always be both God and man. Now, most people, it's obvious that Jesus is always going to be God. It's pretty simple. He's God, right? But for, for some reason, it escapes a lot of us that Jesus will be a man forever. In fact, he is still a man right now as we talk, and he will remain that way forever. You see, the Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus rose from the dead in the same body that he died. And, and then he ascended into heaven, you know, as a man in the same physical body. Well, here's the, here's the thing. It would be pointless and would make no sense for him to have done all that if he was simply going to ditch his body once he got to heaven. The fact that Christ continues being a man with a physical body after the ascension is confirmed by the fact that when he returns, it will be in his body. He will return physically. Philippians 3.27 says that the second coming of Christ, that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. This verse, it's clear that Jesus still has his body, the, the, the glorified body, which Paul calls the body of, of his glory. And Christ, when he returns, he will still have it because the verse says that he will transform our bodies to be like his. Both Jesus and Christians will continue to live together um, in their bodies forever because the resurrection body cannot die. You see, it's critical for Jesus not uh, only to be a man, but to also remain a man. The book of Hebrews says that he became a man so that, that Christ could be uh, an adequate Savior uh, so, who was all that we need. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for, our sins, for the sins of people. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus became a man, okay? He became a man so he could die for our sins. He became a man so that he could pay the penalty for our sins because he must be a human in order to pay the penalty for other humans. Second in this verse says that Jesus is, is human like us, and he's that way because he's able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. His humanity enables him to be more effective in sympathizing with us and identifying with us as our high priest. He is able to know what we're going through. Uh, and not just because he was once a man on earth, but because he continues to be a man forever. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man, and he will be like that for eternity. Now, because this is a difficult truth 
to get our heads wrapped around. There are some people who will wonder, well, does that make Jesus some kind of hybrid being? I mean, he's fully God and fully man. Does that mean that, that both natures are intermingled together and, and creates this hybrid nature? Does, does Jesus become something else entirely? Or are his natures somehow blended together where they're where they, where they changed? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand that even though that God is both 100%, I mean, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, each of these natures still remains distinct. Okay? His natures as God and man are still distinct. You see, it's one thing to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but it's, it's what's more than that. You see, uh, for, for a right understanding of who Jesus really is, we must go even further. We must understand that these two natures of Christ remain distinct and separate, which means they retain their own properties. What makes Jesus God is God, and what makes Jesus man is still man. Now, what does that truth mean? Well, it means two things. Jesus' natures do not alter one another. Okay, They don't alter each other's essential properties. And these two natures don't mix together in a mysterious third kind of nature. You see, it would be wrong to think that Christ's two natures mix together to form a third nature. In fact, uh, this is one of those heresies that the early, that early church had to, to, to deal with. Okay? And the heresy taught that the human nature of Christ was kind of like taken up or absorbed into the divine nature so that both natures were actually changed and, and Jesus became somewhat of a new type of material. Okay? And an analogy is like this. You take a, a drop of ink and drop it in water. Okay? And what happens is that, wa- that that ink is dissolved in the water, and then now what you have is you neither have pure water nor pure ink. You have something that's in between those two, and both of those elements are changed. Well, similarly to this view, it is taught that Jesus was a mixture of divine and human elements, and, and both were somewhat modified to form a new nature. Uh, now, this view is really unbiblical because it demolishes both Christ's deity and his humanity. For if Christ's two natures were mixed together, he is no longer truly and fully God, and he's no longer truly and fully man, but somehow uh, something entirely different. And, and, and that would be the result of mixing these two natures together. Now, the second thing we have to keep in mind is even though the, that we acknowledge that these natures do not mix together and form a, a new kind of nature, it would be wrong to think that these two natures change one another. For example, it would be wrong to conclude that Jesus' human nature you know, became divine in some ways, or, or Jesus' divine natures became human in some ways. Rather, each nature is distinct and thereby retains its own individual properties, and they do not change. You see, Jesus' human nature is human, and it's human only. And Jesus' uh, divine nature is, is divine and divine only. Because here's the truth. If either his divine nature as God or human nature as a man underwent any kind of a change, then Christ is no longer truly God or truly man. Now this truth of Jesus' nature's being distinct leads to more questions. And this is a big question. And the question is that if Jesus is fully God, you know, in nature and fully human in nature, and these do not combine and they remain distinct, then isn't Jesus really just two different people in one body? Okay? Isn't, isn't he the, the person of God and then the person of a man named Jesus in one body? Well, no, he's not. Christ still remains one person. 
Christ is only one person. There's only one person in Christ. And this is what the church has historically believed from the very beginning. And it's stated this way. The church has stated that Christ has two natures united in one person forever. Now, there is another perspective to be aware of. And, and this perspective, while acknowledging that, God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, um, according to this view, they, they are two separate persons in Christ, as well as two natures. Okay, in contrast, this, the Bible is very clear that while Jesus has two natures, he's still one person. In other words, okay, uh, what this means is that there are not two Jesuses. Okay? In spite of uh, the fact that he has two natures, there's only one Christ. And while remaining distinct, the two natures are united together in him, still one person. Or to put simply, there's a certain sense in which Christ is two in a different sense in which he is one. He is two in that he has two real full natures, one divine and one human, but he is one in that while remaining distinct, these two natures exist together in such a way that they constitute one thing. Or in other words, the two natures are both the same Jesus and they're the same person. Now, I know this is not simple, okay? But that's exactly what the Bible teaches in fact, let's look at three teachings from the Bible that demonstrate this. In, in, in the Bible, both you know, natures are represented in Scripture, in, 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 constituting one thing. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, John 1.14, it says, we read, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? Here we see both the natures, the Word, the, the deity, and the flesh, the humanity. Yet, we also see there's still one person. For we read the word became flesh. We see that the word became something. And that word becoming something describes the unity of these two natures into one thing or one person. Because think about this. Why would John write that the word you know, became flesh if the natures do not constitute one person? He would have described it differently. Now it's also important to understand in this text that the word... Um, Became did not does not mean turned into that the flesh. I mean that the, the word didn't become or turn into flesh. Uh, it didn't become something altogether different. Again, because that would be against what the Bible teaches about Jesus' two distinct natures. Now, the second teaching, as we read in the Bible, that I want you to notice that Jesus he never ever speaks of himself as we. He always says I. And this is important. He speaks of himself as a man. When he, says he, when he talks about himself as a man, he says, I. When he talks about himself as a God, he says, I. He says things like, I thirst. That's a total human thing. Okay? But he also said, before Abraham was, I am. That's a total God thing. Jesus always speaks in the first person singular, singular never the first person um, uh, plural. Now the, thing, now, the third teaching from the Bible is that there are many passages that refer to both natures of Christ. Uh, but it's clear that only one person is intended. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it, as it was uh, through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then he writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under a law, who although 
existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, exploited or taken for his own advantage, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that Christ has two complete and distinct natures put together in one person. Jesus is fully and distinctly God and fully and distinctly a person. Now, why is that important? I mean, why is this even relevant? I mean, because you might be thinking like, okay, Sherman, you've already dragged me down through this theological mumbo-jumbo, all right? Why are we talking about this? Well, let me just explain um, for you what this means and the implication of this. As we talked about earlier, the fact that Christ has two natures and that, they, that these things are, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever's true of his human nature is also true, they're not simply true of his divine nature. They're separated. They're, they're, they're distinct, okay? And, and there are things that are true of his divine nature that are not true of his human nature. For example, his human nature, like we said, thirsted and hungered, but his divine nature could never be hungry. And so when Christ hungered on earth, it was his humanity that, that, that hungered, uh, not his divine nature. But the truth is, okay, that we need to wrap our head around is that by virtue of the union of these two natures in one person, the things that are true of one of Christ's nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. In other words, the, the, the things which only one nature does can be considered to be done by Christ himself. Likewise, things that are true of one nature but not true of the other still are true of the person of Christ as a whole. And right now, I know I can kind of see your faces. You're like, wait a second. All right. I know that I had you there for a second, but I lost you. But, but it, and I know this seems complicated, okay? But, because, but it's not. Because what this means in simple terms is that there, there's something that only one of Christ's nature did. If there's only, like, if it's if something he did in his human nature, okay, it, Christ still did it. And if, if there's something that Christ did in his godly nature, Christ still did it. He's still able to say, I all right, am the one who did it. For example, in John 5, 8, 58, it says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Christ's human nature did not exist before Abraham. We understand that. Okay? His human nature didn't exist before Abraham. But it's Christ's divine nature that existed before Abraham. But since Christ is one person, he can still say, I am. Another example is, is it Christ's death. God cannot die. God is immortal and he cannot die. But, but humans can die. And Jesus' human nature absolutely did die. Thus, even though Jesus' divine nature did not die, we still say that the person of Christ experienced death because of that union <clears throat> between the new two natures in that one person of Christ. We can confidently and correctly say that Jesus died. So what is true of one of Christ's natures is true of Christ. I mean, haven't you ever wondered how Jesus could say that he did not know the hour and the day of his return, even though that he is still omniscient? I mean, if Jesus is God, why didn't he know the day of his return? And this is a dilemma, right? Well, the dilemma is solved by understanding that Christ is one person with two natures. Okay? The answer is that in regards to his human nature, Jesus did not have all knowledge. Thus, in his human nature, he really did not know the hour of the day of his return. 
But in his divine nature, he does have all knowledge. And thus, in his divine nature, he did know when he would return. Now here's the most kind of mind-blowing and fascinating part. Since there are two natures united in one person, the fact that Christ, human nature, didn't know when he would return means the person of Christ did not know when he would return. But Jesus, the person, could truly, so Jesus, the person, could truly say, but the day of the hour, you know, no man knows, not even the angels nor the Son, but the Father alone. But at the same time, by virtue of his divine nature, we can also say that the person of Christ did know when he would return. Knowledge and ignorance of the time of his return are both true of Christ, but in different ways. In his human nature, the person of Christ was ignorant of when he would return. In his divine nature, the person of Christ did know when he would return. Thus, Christ himself both knew and did not know when he would return. You see, the truth of who Christ is is found in the mystery of both. He is fully God and fully and distinctly a man. Now, you might be like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I've hit theological overload. My brain hurts. I can't take anymore. All right? I've done all I can do to keep up with you, Sherman. You know, I've done everything I can do to stay awake. And uh, I don't know if I can take any more of this theology, theology stuff today. Well, before you completely check out on me, okay, let me just share one more thing with you, okay? We have talked about the biblical evidence for the fact that Christ is the Son of God and that he has both divine and human natures. And each of these natures is full and complete, and each of these natures remains distinct, and that Christ is nonetheless one single person, and these things, whatever is true of one nature, is true of the person of Christ. And for all of that theology, and for all of that dry discussion, and believe me, I tried to make it as interesting as I could, okay? All right? But for all of that theology and all that dry discussion... Um, These truths that we are talking about here are actually relevant for us in our walk with Christ because these truths go to the very heart of who Christ is. Knowing these truths will greatly affect the way that you view Christ. Remember, it's what you believe that saves you. Jesus is the object of what you believe, and knowing these truths strengthens what you believe. And having this richer understanding of who Jesus is, as complicated as this may seem, should greatly enhance your worship too. You see, because of God's great mercy of who Christ is, okay, that we should have, we should have this ability to marvel and in and, and, and gladness at the fact that the eternal person of God, you know, the Son of God, became a man forever. Our recognition of Christ's worth should be heightened by this understanding. Our faith should be strengthened and we should have a deeper understanding of who he is. Because here's the truth. The union of Christ's deity into humanity as a, in one person gives us all that we need in a Savior. Okay? We all have what we need, everything we need in one person, Jesus Christ. Okay, And because Jesus is God, then he is the all-powerful God and he cannot be defeated. Because he is God, he is the only adequate savior for you. And because he is God, believers are safe and can never perish and have security. And because he is God, we have the confidence that we will that he will empower us to do the things that he calls us to do. And because he is God, all people will be accountable to him when he returns to judge the world. And make no mistake, he will return 
And he will judge the world. And because of that, Jesus, Jesus, because he's a man, he's experienced the same things that we've experienced. And because he's a man, he can identify with us more intimately. And because he's a man, he knows our pain and our hurts. And because he's a man, he can come to our aid as a sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our human weakness. And because... When he, because he's a man, we can relate to him. He is not far off, and he's not uninvolved. We can have a real, up-close relationship with him. We can have a personal relationship with him. Because he's a man, we can rest in the comfort that comes from knowing that Jesus really knows us and really understands us. You see, I understand. <laughs> I understand that, that theology in and of itself is difficult to rest, wrestle with. But these truths are essential to us because in them we believe and we find the solution to our greatest need. We find the truth of who Jesus is. And it is in believing in who Jesus really is that brings for us you know, what we need so desperately. It brings for us salvation. For God so loved the world, which means you and me. That he gave his only son, God the Son. That whoever believes in him, Jesus, fully God, fully man, should not perish but have, in the moment they believe, <clears throat> eternal life. Amen. Jesus was fully God who became fully man in order to save you. Okay? You want to know why it's complicated? It's because that's what it took to rescue you. It took God fusing himself with a human nature and then dying on the cross so that you could be spared. Let me pray for you. Lord God, this is absolutely a difficult teaching. This is something that we struggle with. Now, Lord, I'm going to be honest. I don't 100% right, rightly understand it all myself. I struggle with you know, with, with the truth of this. That you have two natures, one fully God, one fully man. I can't, I can't picture all that. I can't completely understand that. But you know, more than that, Lord, more than, more than the difficulty I have reconciling those two things in my mind, the, the thing that I have difficulty reconciling is that you would send your son to die for a guy like me. That's the thing, as, as I, talk, I think about you and, and worship you every, every day, that's the thing I struggle with. That's the thing I struggle to understand is that, you know, not only did, did you condescend to be, you know, send your son to be a man and he take on a full human nature, but why would he do it for someone like me? I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I've done. And I, I just know that, like, I'm not worthy of that. And so... Of all the mysteries of the world, that's the one that I get choked up on. That's the one that I struggle with. But, you know, it doesn't matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter if I can piece it together in my mind. You know, you already exist beyond the limits of my imagination. What matters is what, is what you said. You said that if I will believe, if I will confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I'd be saved. And I'd done that a long time ago. And, and, and Lord, I just pray you know, for those who haven't done that. In fact, if you haven't done that today, I just want you to just think about this for a second. Jesus came into the world to save you from your sins. 
And then no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can be made right with God right now. All you need to understand is that you're a broken sinner. You can't fix it yourself. But that God made a way through Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in him, you will be saved. And so I just invite you right now uh, to pray with me. If you have not received Christ as your Savior yet, pray with me now. And let's do that. And it goes like this. Heavenly Father, I'm a broken, broken, broken sinner. I've done so many things I'm ashamed of. and done so many things that I can't even like, even, I don't even want to talk about or think about. And I know that I've fallen short of your glory. I know that I've done things that are not pleasing to you. And I realize I'm covered up by the stain of my sin. And I realize that there's nothing I can do to fix it. I can't make myself right before you. It's not that I don't have good intentions or I'm not capable of doing good things. It's just the ugliness of who I really am stains everything that I do. And so I'm helpless without you. So I take you at your word when you said that you sent your son in the world. That if I would believe in him, that I would be saved. That I would have eternal life. Paul says that believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. He says also that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that you raise him from the dead, that I'd be saved. Well, I confess right now that Jesus is my Lord. He's the, he's the king. He's the boss. Okay? And that will follow him. And I believe sincerely that he physically rose from the dead as a fact of history. And I put my trust in that, that one day I'll be resurrected right along with him. And so I just pray right now, Lord, you fill me up with your Holy Spirit to confirm for me that I am saved and I am your, your child and that I would walk with you every single day of my life, growing to be more like you and being molded and shaped and remade into your image. Okay, Take my heart and form it. Take my mind conform it. Take my will and transform it to yours. That's what we sang this morning and that's what I pray right now. I thank you for that. It's the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.